Welcome to the first episode of our special mini-series on opioids, brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, and I am one of two behavioral health specialists at the IFF. Today, we're going to lay the groundwork for the rest of this series by talking about opioids and opioid use disorders. What are they? We are joined by my colleague, Lauren Kosk, also a behavioral health specialist at the IFF and a licensed clinical professional counselor. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So Lauren, I know you started your career as a substance abuse counselor. Could you tell us a little more about yourself and your, your background in this work? Yeah, sure. Um, so prior to coming to the IFF, I worked exclusively as a clinician for about 10 years in a variety of community and hospital-based treatment settings, so both in mental health and substance use. And I really love this field. I find that whatever's going on in the world, um, you know, this work feels very relevant and um, just a privilege to be a, be a part of. Um, my first counseling position out of school was in a uh, substance abuse treatment program for adults and adolescents in Bethesda, Maryland. And I think in that program, in that position, really quickly I got to learn how addiction really crosses any uh, demographics, race, socioeconomic status, what part of town you're from. And uh, a little bit later in my career, I worked on an inpatient unit for about a year and a half. And, you know, there I truly got to work with some people in the absolute lowest points of their lives and working with patients as they're detoxing from alcohol or opioids. You know, it was very rewarding to get to help some of these people to get back on their feet to whatever that next step in their recovery journey is. But I think it is also, uh, it was also disconcerting at times to see some of the same patients being admitted for detox over and over. And I think, you know, some of our members in the fire service can probably relate to some of that same fatigue when responding to overdose uh, calls in the community. Um, you know, it can leave you feeling kind of helpless as a treatment provider when you see folks that are just stuck in this cycle of addiction. So I'm excited that the IFF um, is uh, giving us this opportunity to use our resources to shed some light on this issue, um, hopefully bring some additional perspective to our members on the opioid epidemic, and also maybe look inward a bit to see how this problem might be affecting our own membership. Great. Sounds like a lot of really awesome experience that's really informing your work with our members now. And yeah. we at the IFF are just so lucky to have you. Um, so I, I really want to start at the beginning. Um, might sound a little basic, but I think we, you know, we have to start where we start. Um, you know, tell us about opioids. What are they, and what are they used for medically? Yeah. Um, so opioids are a class of drugs, basically that effectively block pain signals between the body and the brain. So when taken as prescribed, opioids are generally considered safe and effective for most people for treating moderate to severe acute pain in the short term. So this kind of pain would be um, immediately following a surgery or a burn or a broken bone, dental work, childbirth. So this is what we mean by acute pain in the, in the short term period. There are basically three main types of opioids. So those that exist in nature from the opium poppy plant, those are natural opioids. Then we have semi-synthetic opioids like oxycodone, and fully synthetic opioids like fentanyl or methadone, which are made in a lab. So basically each of these drugs work the same way by binding to opioid receptors in the brain to relieve pain and dull the senses. 
they also create feelings of euphoria and well-being by allowing our brains to be flooded with um, our, the feel-good chemical dopamine. So because these, um, these medications have these pain-relieving and sedative properties that can make us feel really good and relaxed, the DEA classifies these medications as narcotics, which will become relevant when we look at treatment options for different um, occupational groups later in the series. So you touched on a little bit of how these types of drugs impact the brain and the body. You mentioned that um, opioids bind to certain receptors in the brain. Um, do they have other impacts on the brain and the body? Yeah, so um, the way we can think about how opioids impact the brain is basically by landing on um, these tiny receptors in the brain. Um, receptors are like a docking station or um, a part of the brain that exists to receive messages and information. So basically, opioids quiet the nerve cells that tell your brain, I'm in pain, so then dampening the physical experience of pain. Um, in addition to blocking pain signals to the brain, opioids also block the transmission of what's called GABAergic nerve cells. So it's kind of a, a mouthful, but um, basically these nerve cells function as the off switch for pleasure in the brain. So when these nerve cells are shut down, the pleasure circuits of the brain uh, become flooded, again, with that feel-good chemical called dopamine, which um, can make us feel happy and uh, relieve stress and, and just make us feel good overall. Um, so this explains why when um, a user is using opioids, why, why these feelings of euphoria can come, because the part of the brain um, that blocks dopamine production is temporarily disrupted. So, so the brain becomes flooded with those feel-good chemicals. Um, so that's a little bit about how opioids work in the brain. And of course, opioids have uh, a lot of different impacts on the body. So in the short term, um, we know that opioids cause feelings of sleepiness and sedation or confusion. Um, opioids not only bind to pain receptors, but other receptors that are involved with involuntary functions in the body like breathing, digestion, and heart rate. When taken in higher doses, opioids can lower blood pressure, slow heart rate, and slow breathing. So a key factor in many overdose deaths is a condition called hypoxia, which occurs when too little oxygen reaches the brain, and this can cause coma, um, brain damage, or death. There are also some long-term um, effects of, of long-term opioid use disorder that we found. So studies that have looked at long-term opioid therapy for pain management have identified um, several negative health outcomes that we want to be aware of, and we certainly want our membership to be aware of when using these medications in the long-term for pain management. Um, so one of the, the health outcomes that's been found is just increased pain sensitivity. So the body begins to feel pain in different places or areas of the body that were previously pain-free. Another issue is digestive problems. So because opioids cause the digest digestive system to slow down, constipation is a common side effect. And in long-term use, chronic constipation can lead to bowel blockages and also increase risks for gastrointestinal bleeding. Patients on long-term opioid therapy also have been found to have higher levels of sleep-disordered breathing, um, a reduced immune response, and just higher levels of depression. A large Medicare study also found that patients taking opioids for arthritis, uh, for pain management for their arthritis, also had a much higher risk of heart attack and heart failure when compared to those in non-opioid 
pain therapies. So these are some of the short-term and, and long-term effects that we want to be aware of with these medications. Sounds like a lot of potential really serious side effects or consequences um, from use of these drugs. Uh, I want to go, go back to one thing you said about increased pain sensitivity. So you're saying that uh, a member or a person who's taking opioids to try to manage their pain might actually end up experiencing mm -hmm. more pain later. Yeah, so it is possible with chronic use of these medications, which again is, is not very long. Long-term use of an opioid would be considered three months or longer. So it's, it's not even very long. Um, yeah, it can change the way your body experiences pain. So it's, it's called hyperalgesia, and it basically means your, you know, the, the, the impact of the opioids really change the way your opioid receptors process pain, process the pain signal. So your body can begin to feel pain in new areas or feel pain differently in areas that were previously pain-free. So really the, the reverse impact of what somebody who you know, begins taking an opioid for a, a short-term reason, like a, an injury or a surgery, is looking for. Exactly. In the long term, it's a possibility. All right. So let's talk a, a little more about addiction. Um, how do addictions to opioids develop? Yeah. So, you know, we all know that pain is a part of life. So whether you have a surgical procedure or, you know, our members might experience a work-related injury or you cope with chronic back pain or just have everyday headaches, everyone experiences pain at, at some point in, in their life, right? We know it's just a part of life. It's a part of being human. As we mentioned, opioid medications are very effective in treating pain in the short term. While anyone can become addicted to these medications, we do want to point out that most people who are prescribed them do take them as directed, and they are able to discontinue using the medications after a few days or weeks without a problem. Some people, however, do have a hard time stopping the medication, even when they're taking it as prescribed. This can be because their injury hasn't healed, um, acute pain has become chronic pain, or the person might be predisposed either genetically or behaviorally, to become addicted to the drug. When opioids are taken more frequently than prescribed or at a higher dose than prescribed or for a longer period of time than they were prescribed, this is what we would call misuse. Um, so bottom line, when a person begins using opioids every day throughout the day to manage pain, the brain does become hardwired to expect and need these medications just to feel normal. So this is basically how the vicious cycle of addiction begins for some people. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're using a lot of different terms to talk about this problem. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could clarify for our listeners, you know, are these things the same? Or are they different? You know, we've talked about addiction. We've talked about dependence. We've talked about use and misuse, opioid use disorder. Um, you know, are these all the same things or what are the difference, differences between them? Yeah, so that's a really great question, um, and it's really important for anyone on these medications or wanting to get off them to really understand the difference between dependence and addiction. So dependence refers to the physical tolerance one develops after their body has adapted to the drug, uh, then that goes along with, with withdrawal symptoms. So 
unpleasant physical symptoms that set on once the person has stopped taking the drug. So dependence really refers to the physiological process of the body getting used to the drug. Addiction, on the other hand, is when physical dependence leads to a compulsive pattern of behavior and continued drug use despite harmful consequences that are occurring in the person's life because of the drug use. So it's possible to be physiologically dependent on a drug without being addicted to it. For example, if someone is taking insulin to manage diabetes or a hormone or a hormone imbalance, um, we wouldn't call those individuals addicted to their medications, but we would say they are dependent on those drugs. When someone is addicted, on the other hand, they're truly unable to stop using the drug, despite the negative consequences that are occurring in their lives as a result of using their drug or that drug. There's a long list of additional clinical criteria for opioid use disorder that distinguish dependence from addiction, but basically what we want to keep in mind is that there's this physiologically driven need to keep using the drug and it becomes more important to the person than managing just their daily responsibilities related to work, school, family, home, or just taking care of themselves. So functioning um, can become really impaired in those areas. Could you tell us a little more about what addiction looks like? Uh, what are the signs? You know, if, if a member is concerned about a family member or somebody else, what should they be looking for? Yeah, so some of the symptoms and changes uh, will really vary based on what stage of use the person is in. So um, again, if they're using, misusing, or beginning to withdraw from opioids, the symptoms, the physical symptoms are going to look different. But some of those would include constricted pinpoint pupils, um, flushed or itchy or red looking skin, changes in weight, more often weight loss, um, trouble staying awake, seeming sleepy, um, seeming uncoordinated, uh, flu-like symptoms, uh, increases or a decrease in pain sensitivity, so just changes in pain sensitivity, and then poor hygiene. Um, some of the social or emotional changes of a loved one might observe would just be um, withdrawal from family and friends. Um, changes in one social group. So all of a sudden the person prefers to hang out with a completely new group of friends. Um, there might be an, an increased need for privacy or alone time um, or kind of secrecy away from, um, you know, from, uh, from loved ones. There could be changes in mood, so intense mood swings that seem a little out of character for the person. Um, and then just a loss of interest in activities that were previously important to the person. Um, how widespread are these issues in the U.S. and Canada? How many people are affected? Um, it's pretty widespread from the information that we have. Um, so I'll, I'll share a few statistics with you. Between 2016 to 2020, approximately 14,000 Canadians died from opioid-related deaths, while over 17,000 were hospitalized due to opioid-related poisoning or overdose. In the U.S., um, we know that each year more than 2 million Americans uh, and an estimated 15 million people worldwide suffer from opioid use disorder. Um, in 2017 alone in the United States, just shy of 48,000 Americans died from an opioid overdose. Uh, and we also know that about 130 people die every day in the United States from an opioid overdose. Um, so the statistics are, are pretty, pretty staggering and alarming.
So Lauren, you shared these statistics about how many people die from opioid overdoses or how many people have these um, opioid use disorders or are affected, um, and that doesn't even touch the family members, friends, the loved ones of these people who have these issues who are also really affected. Right. So we know that each person that's suffering from opioid addiction or certainly each family that has lost a family member to an opioid overdose, you know, there is a whole rippling effect that occurs from that, obviously. So it's, it's pretty um, sobering to consider that these medications, which were designed to and are effective to help treat people and alleviate suffering, also have such a high risk of causing suffering in the communities and in, in, in the families where uh, we see these problems. So far, we've, we've talked about opioid use generally in the general population. Is there any research about this issue in firefighters and EMS professionals? You know, how many firefighters uh, and, and paramedics or EMTs have opioid use disorders? So the shorter answer is no, there, there really isn't any research on this population specifically, at least that I'm aware of. The research we have on substance use among firefighters is almost entirely focused on alcohol use. Again, as of today, there are no reliable um, research articles from scientific uh, peer-reviewed journals specifically on opioid use disorder among fire and EMS personnel that I'm aware of. So. Um, it's really an area that needs to be studied more, you know, just because we don't know how large the scope of the problem is among fire service personnel. Uh, we do know that this is a disease that touches really every aspect of society, regardless of gender, class, race, or income. So, so we know it is a problem. We just don't know how big of a problem it is among fire service personnel. We mm -hmm. also know that just because of the physically demanding nature of the job of our members, they are prone to injury, both on and off the fire ground, which of course can increase the likelihood that they will experience pain management challenges, either in the short or long term. So um, it is something that we really do want to stay on top of and try to understand further. But at this time, we really don't have um, good information on the scope of the problem. So you've shared with us a lot of great information uh, about opioids, what they're used for, how they affect a person, um, you know, addiction, the difference between a dependence and addiction, and how widespread these problems are across the U.S. and Canada, and that unfortunately we don't have really great data on opioid use disorders among firefighters and EMS professionals and how widespread that is. Um, what haven't I asked you about that you would like our listeners to know about this topic? So we talked a lot about opioid addiction today and how quickly it can devastate a life or a family, but I really do want to emphasize before we wrap up today that if there's anyone out there who's struggling with this addiction or knows someone who is, this is absolutely a treatable illness and effective help really is available. And I think in an upcoming episode, we're going to look at some of these treatments, but I just want to emphasize that it's never too late to ask for help. And at the same time, one doesn't have to wait until they're at their absolute rock bottom and has lost everything to reach out and talk to their doctor or someone they trust if they're having problems with these medications. So we know that there are millions of people living in recovery all over the world today from this illness that have been in your exact same shoes and have felt like it's impossible. But with the right treatment and the right support around you and the right attitude, recovery is definitely possible. So we just want to emphasize that. 
Lauren, I, I really appreciate you joining us for this conversation today. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.